It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 271 for December 11th, 2011. This week, high dynamic range magic, Windows 8 hardware, Amazon, in short circuits, tablets, frauds, and batteries. Let's start with HDR, easier than you think. HDR is the abbreviation for High Dynamic Range, and although the technology is less than a decade old, it has achieved the status of being magic that is only within the realm of master photographers. Well, not exactly. Adobe Photoshop has offered HDR merge options for several versions and usable HDR merge options since about CS4. But if you really want to explore the advantages of HDR, you're going to need a Photoshop plug-in, such as Nick's HDR Effects Pro. A little boring background is essential to the explanation of HDR, so let's get that out of the way first. Cameras have shutters that control how long the film or sensor sees a scene, and lenses with f-stops that control how much light reaches the sensor in a given time. Shutter speeds are easy. It's obvious to just about anybody that a shutter speed of 1 one thirtieth of a second allows twice as much light to reach the sensor as a shutter speed of 1 sixtieth of a second. The lens's f-stops aren't quite as obvious for two reasons. First, the relationship is inverse because smaller numbers indicate more light, and second, those numbers are logarithmic. So f1 allows twice as much light as f1.2. The full-stop f-numbers are 1, 1 1.2, 2.0, 2.8, 4.0, 5.6, 8, 11, 16, and 32. I've never seen a lens with an f-stop higher than 32, but the scale does continue. 45, 64, 90, 128, 180, 256, and, well, and so on. Now stay with me for just a little longer. Each doubling of the light is a stop, and our eyes can easily handle a dozen stops or more. Because our point of focus frequently changes, the apparent range is even higher. Film and digital sensors, on the other hand, have a maximum range of just 8 to 10 stops, and they can't change as you look around the image. So the bottom line is that film and sensors and monitors are incapable of recording and displaying an image the way we saw it. And the printing process? Well, that's even worse. HDR photography is an attempt to retain on screen and on paper the gigantic dynamic range that our eyes can tolerate on a medium, screen or paper, that cannot reproduce that range. HDR images want to have at least three exposures from your camera. First, the exposure the way the camera thought was correct. Second, an exposure that doubles the light. And third, an exposure that halves the light. You can play with this a little bit. I typically shoot a series of three images, one as metered, then images that are one and a third stops over and under. Other photographers may shoot a series of five or seven images, and they may cover an even wider range of exposures. What you're looking for is a group of images where one or more of those images retain detail in the highlights. You get this from the underexposed images, as well as detail in the shadows. And you get this from the overexposed images. But you also want detail in the midtones, and these will come from the as-metered images. The trick is finding a way to combine all these images. 
The average JPEG image can represent 8 or 16 bits per pixel, but to record the higher dynamic range for HDR images, you need at least 32 bits per pixel, and no monitor or printing press can reproduce anything close to that range of colors. So what you need is called tone mapping, and that's what HDR is all about. You can work with multiple images or a single image. Let's start with a single image. Check out the TechBiter Worldwide website to see these images. Cats don't much care if you make them look funny, so I'll be using a cat for this exercise. For the single image technique, I started with a picture of Chloe Kitty, and what I ended up with would be called Crunchy. That's a pretty good description for the version that I created with Nick's HDRFX Pro plugin for Photoshop, Lightroom, and Aperture. You might not like that look. That's okay. It's just one of many HDR effects Nick's application make available to you. In most cases, though, you'll want to start with several images. The results are going to be better in the long run. So I took the camera out and took some pictures. When I returned with photos that I thought might be good for HDR, I had three images of each view. I hadn't used a tripod, and in most cases, that's a no-no. So getting the images in exact registration was important. After stacking the images to reduce clutter, I selected the pictures that show the exterior of Worthington Industries headquarters. You'll see the three images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. One is the exposure set by the camera's metering system. It's a good average exposure. Trouble is that detail is missing in both the dark areas and to a lesser extent in the light areas. You might think that using a Photoshop levels adjustment layer could bring out detail at both ends of the exposure range. The histogram showed me that some of the dark areas are being clipped, but there's quite a bit of headroom at the top of the scale. So stretching the histogram helps, but it could still be better. I started with those three images, as metered, one and a third stops under, one and a third stops over. The number of exposures will always be odd, three, five, or seven, and sometimes the range will go as far as three stops over and three under. That kind of range is needed only for the most challenging images. I used Photoshop to merge the images. Nick's HDRFX Pro also includes a merge function, but Photoshop's built-in process does a better job of merging the images. The resulting 32-bit image looks really flat on the screen, but that's because no tone mapping has been done yet, and the screen just can't handle that range. Photoshop CS5 includes an HDR tone mapping function, but Nick's HDRFX Pro plugin will do a much better job. First, though, I need to save the image in what's called EXR format. This file type retains all 32 bits per pixel, and that's essential for the bitmapping that's going to follow. The next image you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website is essentially my starting point. Very little detail in the sky, the trees look anemic, the white parts of the building have pretty much no detail. So then I selected one of Nick's built-in defaults. Now the sky is a lot more dramatic, but the building looks kind of dingy. Fortunately, Nick provides many presets and an array of controls to modify the settings. I found one that I really liked. The image has detail in the clouds and on the face of the building, the lightest areas, but it also retains detail in the darkest part of the image, that's the parking lot. So then I created an 8-bit output image. The sky is no longer just a blob of near white. The colors of the trees' remaining leaves are bright. The shadow areas have detail. Some additional work might be appropriate in Photoshop to improve the appearance of the pavement, because those kinds of corrections aren't something that tone mapping can fix. And here I have to give you a bit of a hokiness warning. I didn't have time to do a good job on the pavement, but I did work on it a little. It'll give you an idea of how the pavement might be fixed to make this an even better image. 
Then just for fun, I thought I'd see what I could do with a picture of me. And what I came up with might or might not be a good representation, depending on your point of view. That's the important thing about art. If the image pleases you and communicates your intended meaning, it's good. If not, just keep trying until you find the representation that works for you. And for you is definitely the critical point here. Next, let's take a look at an even more challenging image, a shiny metal sculpture in shadows on a cloudy day. The three images are normal under and over. The sky works better in the underexposed image. The shadow detail is, of course, much improved in the overexposed image. The final image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is much better than any of the three images I started with. There's detail in the metal sculpture. There's detail in the sky. There is detail in the underside of the roof and detail in the branches of the tree. Your eyes would register all of these areas of detail as you looked around the scene, but no combination of cameras, lenses, film, or digital sensors would ever be able to reproduce all that detail in a single image. That is what tone mapping makes possible, and that's the excitement of tone mapping. The bottom line on Nix HDRFX Pro, which opens the door to dramatic images, five cats, this definitely is a wow program. HDR images allow us to see things the way we remember them. HDR images also allow us to create surrealistic images, completely unlike anything we've ever seen or will see. For years, I have been wrestling with tone mapping and trying to find a method that offers a wide range of controls, along with ease of use. Nick HDRFX Pro is that method. For more information, you can visit the Nick website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. What's it going to take to run Windows 8? Some people were surprised when they found that Windows 7 ran better than Vista on the same hardware. That's one of the things that caused people like me to refer to Windows 7 as Vista done right. And from the looks of things now, Windows 8 will be even more efficient. Certain conditions and warnings do apply. Conditions and warnings. I mention those because judging an unfinished operating system months before it's going to be released, and while the software is almost certainly still full of debugging code, is a little tricky. The overall look and feel probably won't change a lot between now and release day, but performance could change a lot. So, consider this an exercise in applied guessing. I'm running Windows 8 on two computers, one 32-bit system and one 64-bit system. In both cases, startup and shutdown is faster than with Windows 7 on the same machines. I know that because both are dual boot. System requirements actually seem to be less for Windows 8 than for Windows 7. Microsoft says Windows 8 will run on a 1 GHz processor with 1 GB of RAM. Good luck with that if you try it. Double the RAM if you have a 64-bit system. In part, this is probably because Windows 8 needs to be able to run well on portable devices with low-power processors. Microsoft says that battery life will be somewhat better, too. Of course, if you want decent performance, you will need more powerful hardware. Windows 8 will use memory more efficiently, too. Many applications use identical code libraries for commonly used functions. If the same library is used by a dozen programs that you have open simultaneously, a dozen copies of the code will be in memory, on Windows 7 anyway. 
Microsoft says that this next operating system will check to see what code each program is actually using. And, when more than one copy of library code is in memory, all but one copy will be discarded, and all of the applications will share that single copy. Windows 8 has two separate interfaces, the standard desktop for notebooks and desktop computers, and Metro for tablets and other portable devices. Running Metro on a system with a keyboard and mouse isn't efficient or enjoyable, but I can see how important it's going to be for those who have handheld devices. The Metro apps that come with the pre-beta version of the operating system are mostly useless, but they do display some of the system's capabilities. You can't actually close a Metro app except by opening the task manager and killing it, but then there's really no need to close a Metro app. As with other applications on portable devices, applications that aren't in use are simply suspended. Those who are already familiar with portable devices won't have any problem mastering this new interface. Under Metro, you don't have a start menu. You have a start screen. As I noted, this is a good choice for handheld devices. But those of us who are used to the regular start menu may opt to keep the older interface. Or maybe not. After all, if the start screen is available, and I type WOR and then press Enter, Microsoft Word will start. Microsoft hasn't been forthcoming with information about whether users will have to just suck it up and get used to the start screen, or if the Start menu will somehow be retained. It appears to me that the interface has hooks for the Start menu, so my guess is that both interfaces will be available. Microsoft should know that some people just don't take well to radical change, even when the change is an improvement. Windows 8 will offer a new feature that is very promising, but I haven't used it yet. The option to reset the computer or refresh the computer. A refresh is essentially a clean installation of the operating system, except that it retains all of your documents and applications. I wonder how this will work for computers that have multiple hard drives, which is no longer an uncommon setup, and I wonder whether it will retain all documents that aren't stored in the user's Documents folder. Choosing to reset the computer deletes all of your files and restores the computer to its new out-of-the-box state. That will be useful when it's time to sell the computer or give it away. Windows networking has been improving, and this is a good thing, because there was once a time when setting up a new network connection was so difficult on a PC that some people who generally don't use Macs took an Apple computer with them when they traveled, simply because the Mac made connecting to a network so easy. But I have to raise my hand on that one. That's what I did. Windows 7 does a very good job with networks. Windows 8 is even better. If more than one network connection is available, Windows 8 will select, aha, the fastest connection. And it's also smart enough to differentiate between low-cost LAN or Wi-Fi connections and those all-you-can-gouge cellular connections. If an update is due but all you have is a cellular connection, Windows 8 will delay the update until you're on a more affordable connection. The December issue of Wired contains a report on the state of Amazon.com and an interview with CEO Jeff Bezos, who Wired refers to as the guy who owns the web in more ways than you think. The Wired article is well worth the few minutes it'll take you to read it. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And what you find, at least some of the things you find, will probably surprise you. Bezos is pretty well known for taking the long view. Amazon lost money for years, and its profit margins today are slim, but the company sells so much stuff 
that those slim margins add up. The newly released Fire tablet isn't a direct competitor for devices such as the iPad, but it could make the iPad obsolete because it takes a fundamentally different approach. Rather than download and play, the Fire is all about streaming. The Wired article outlines some of the major differences between Fire and the iPad, and there's a chart on the TechBiter Worldwide website that summarizes. In releasing the Fire, which is being sold for less than it costs to manufacture, Amazon announced that performance would be off for a while, fiscal performance, that is. Wall Street doesn't like the long view and demands immediate gratification, so Amazon's stock price suffered. In the article, Bezos is quoted as saying, and I quote here, If everything you do needs to work on a three-year time horizon, then you're competing against a lot of people. But if you're willing to invest on a seven-year time horizon, you're now competing against a fraction of those people because very few companies are willing to do that. Amazon typically wants new projects to work within five to seven years. That attitude alone is one of the reasons that Amazon.com makes more than half of the online book sales and owns about 20% of sales for video, music, and consumer electronics. One of the key facts I learned from the article by Stephen Levy is how Amazon Web Services got started and how large it is today. I really had no idea. Initially an internal project, Amazon Web Services was recognized as a project that Amazon was going to build regardless, so Bezos started asking how much more it would cost to develop a system that they could sell to other users. Today AWS is by far the largest player in the market. And again, there's a chart from Wired. You'll see how that works out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And then be sure to visit the Wired website and read the whole article. It is an interesting one. In short circuits, speaking of tablets, and I was just speaking of tablets with Amazon's Fire and the Apple iPad, of course there are all those Android devices on the market too. But next year there will be a new player, Microsoft with Windows 8, aiming directly at the tablet market. Timing is really important, and with Android devices, not all of which are tablets, selling at the rate of about half a million a day, one has to wonder if Microsoft isn't arriving just a little bit late to the party. That could be, but market research shows that demand for tablets is expected to skyrocket next year, and some people will simply want a tablet that has the same operating system that's on their PC or laptop. Microsoft learned some important lessons with Vista, and didn't repeat Vista's mistakes in Windows 7. Windows 8 will have a vastly different interface that works on a tablet, and if logic prevails, also the standard interface for those of us who don't use tablets. Some of the larger players are already preparing for Windows 8. Dell, HP, and Asus should all have tablets ready to go when the operating system is ready to go, and that'll be sometime in 2012. Concerns about Android devices are common now and could reasonably be expected to increase, particularly in light of the recent revelations about the hidden carrier IQ application that may or may not be sending your every keystroke to someone. It seems odd to be talking about Microsoft and Windows as being in a position to have better security than some other vendor, but currently the Android's reputation is damaged. The year of the tablet, 2012. Should be an interesting ride. Uh-oh, the Better Business Bureau says one of my customers complained, Oh, but I've been invited to a conference. All travel expenses are paid. And Amazon is sending me a medical device, but I didn't order one. And a bank official is writing, in Comic Sans, 
to share $19,305,050.12 with me. What all these have in common, of course, is that they're phony. A Better Business Bureau told me that it had got the above-referenced complaint, but there was nothing above-referenced in the message. It told me that there was a file enclosed. None was. And they, of course, encouraged me to click a link to reply to the complaint. On the message, there was a graphical logo from the Better Business Bureau, but the graphic was faulty. It didn't link to the Better Business Bureau, and the message itself came from a time zone east of Greenwich, putting it somewhere in Western Europe. As far as I know, the Better Business Bureau is located here in the U.S. Then I got a letter from the Humanitarian Welfare Association wishing me to attend an international conference on social welfare and global peace that will be head from 20th to 25th, February 2012, in United States of American. United States of American? It didn't mention where in the United States of American that this conference is going to be held. That might be useful information if I wanted to attend a conference in the United States of American. But it was their pleasure to invite me and my associate to participate in this international conference meeting. Now, wait a minute. Instead of a conference meeting, I really would prefer a seminar program conference meeting gathering. Did they have one of those? They told me that I should be informed that the HWA, we provided visa document, an air round-trip ticket, an economic flight to participate in the conference meeting here in United States, and all delegates are to cover up their local hotel reservation changes in United States of America. What? Well, some fool probably fell for that and sent money to cover some suddenly discovered expenses. Oh, look, Amazon is sending me a fat loss monitor. I might actually be able to use that. The message was a more or less routine-looking shipping confirmation from Amazon, except for several dead obvious giveaways. First, it didn't come from Amazon, but from O-E-F-L-K-M-F-A-C-V-U-L-F-R. Sounds like an eye chart. At leonlay.net. The domain may exist, but the alphabet soup address probably doesn't. I didn't even bother to look. Second, the message was sent not only to me, but to several team addresses at the office. From the looks of it, everybody in the office bought a fat loss monitor, even the skinny folks on the staff. And third, the links to track the package or view the order did not go to Amazon.com, but to some other domain where the target was probably a poisoned page poised to infect my machine or possibly a really authentic-looking form where I could cancel the order by providing all of my banking information. Sorry, guys, I didn't bite. And then there's the bank guy using Comic Sans. I am Mr. Albert Chong, the message said, a staff member of the HSBC Bank Malaysia. Well, he was offering me $19,305,050.12. All right, you already know the drill on this one. He would probably want to share 60-40 or maybe 70-30, something like that. But then, oh my goodness, some expense would come up and I'd have to pay that expense before I could get my money. But it'd be just a small amount and the money would be following soon, except that it would never arrive. The only really amusing thing about this is that the writer used Comic Sans, which is not exactly the most logical choice for bankers. And he specified the amount right down to the penny. I guess he wanted to show me just how accurate he is. You know, I really can't feel too sorry for anyone over the age of 10 who falls for any of these cons. <laughs> Many of the toys and electronic devices that are sold this time of year feature text on the box in 
three-point type or thereabouts that says batteries not included. So then you see an offer for a huge number of heavy-duty batteries at an incredibly low price. Do you buy? Well, if you know anything about batteries, you probably don't. Corporate America, you may know, sometimes stretches the truth just a little. For example, in the USB world, there is full speed and high speed. If you see something advertised as full speed, stay away from it, because full speed means it's an astonishingly slow USB 1.1 device. USB 2 is high speed, and USB 3 is faster still, yet full speed sounds really fast, doesn't it? The same is true of batteries. For most electronic devices, you want alkaline batteries, and that's what the package will say if that's what's inside. If you don't see the word alkaline, the offer is probably for batteries that are 40-year-old technology. Most heavy-duty batteries are this old technology, carbon zinc or zinc chloride, and they have a lousy shelf life. Store them for a couple of years and they'll be dead. Alkaline batteries, on the other hand, can be stored for five years, and in five years, they'll lose only about a quarter of their stored energy. I know this because I bought a flashlight this year. Batteries not included. And then I found a package of old, heavy-duty batteries lying around the house. Carbon zinc. They'd been here for a little over two years. They were dead. If you have clocks or TV remote controls, then you can stock up on heavy-duty batteries. If not, you'd be wise to avoid them. Essentially, the bottom line is this. If you want the cheapest battery available and you don't care about shelf life or longevity, buy those old heavy-duty batteries. And at the same time, lower your expectations. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.